The Old Testament reading this morning is from Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, and can be found on page 673 in your pew Bibles. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43, and can be found on page 1061. Jesus appears to the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he, ate, he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of the Lord. So this week, we are talking about the Song of Songs, which um, is a collection of erotic love poetry. So uh, parents, you may have to have some conversations with your kids after this sermon. Um, sorry. <laughs> but also, it's better to get started early anyway. So I'm not that sorry. Yeah, this book is a series of poetic dialogues between a man and a woman who are lovers. And there's some occasional comments in there, in there from uh, a couple of other groups as well. It is, for sure, the steamiest book in the Bible. Um, for that reason, I was a little nervous in choosing a scripture text this morning. You notice it wasn't that steamy. Uh, because I was nervous about making the scripture reader uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> Uh, I talked with two different women this week who told me that in reading this book, they, they were like, whew, uh, they both did that motion. <laughs> um, apparently, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's even more suggestive than in the English, and still more so if you understand Hebrew idiom. Um, some of the imagery in the text doesn't really connect with us, uh, like some parts of the man's description of the woman. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says to her, Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Like, does he mean you've got all your teeth and they seem clean? <laughs> Some of the images, too, require a little more context for us to understand. In chapter 1, verse 9, the man says, 
I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses, which is a little strange. Uh, but in the Old, the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis points out that Pharaoh's chariots were driven by stallions. And once, when he was in a battle with the prince of Kadesh, the opposing army brought in a mare in heat and sent all of his horses, like, berserk, essentially. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea how that battle turned out. And I also don't know how I would take that compliment. <laughs> But the steaminess comes through for us loud and clear in some parts. So let's take a part of the end of chapter four. The man says to his lover, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And she says, awake north wind, come south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And he then says, like, I did come into the garden. <laughs> uh, hopefully you're catching the euphemism there. Um, <laughs> or if you need it to be a little more explicit, in chapter 7, starting at verse 6, it says, he says to her again, How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb that palm tree and take hold of its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> like, it feels awkward to read it from the pulpit, but, like, that probably says something more about me and our faith together, right? That we cannot or we struggle to read the word of the Lord from uh, the pulpit. I find that here, and I find it also when we read some of the harder laments in Scripture. There are places where even God's word um, feels like it doesn't belong this book also um, only sort of mentions God. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 6, the woman says, Love is as strong as death, its jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. And the Hebrew behind the word mighty flame, you could translate it like the fire of God. And that's it. That's how God is mentioned in this book. Um, so lots of people ask, like, why is this here? Uh, and that's a great question. If you ask me, I think it is because the Holy Spirit was overseeing the process whereby they assembled the canon, and the Holy Spirit was very interested in there being a solid affirmation of the goodness of creation. It had to be the Spirit, because all this sexy language made a lot of people uncomfortable, um, and it still does. But really, that question of why it's here, you know, it's been answered in a bunch of ways because the text has been interpreted in a whole bunch of ways. It's poetry. That's what it's kind of supposed to do. Ellen Davis calls the book a cascade of metaphors that invites different interpretations. All the different ways of reading it come to us because the text is written in such a way as to elicit them. It's not that we're reading it wrong or we don't know how to read it. That's what happens when you read it right. The greatest poetry, you know, it seems to grow with us. People will memorize great poems and carry them with them, and the meanings will seem to grow and shift as they do. And the Song of Songs is like that. 
I love that. I've been saying throughout this series on scripture that we are not just supposed to, you know, distill each scripture down to like one little point about how moral your life should be, but that we're supposed to get inside it, move around in it, explore, and even play to see where God shows up in our musings and our questions and our discoveries, to see what the Spirit might do in us with this living text. If we allow the Song of Songs to hold multiple meanings, it comes to be a rich, rich text that speaks of the goodness of creation and the restoration of all things to what they were intended to be. Many of the early Jewish and Christian interpreters read the Song of Songs as an allegory, meaning that they saw it not as a poem about two human lovers, but they used that image to explore the love shared between God and Israel or God and the church. And each specific line they thought corresponded to some part of that relationship. And they wrote a lot about this. The first Christian commentary is on Song of Songs. And Bernard of Clairvaux wrote... 86 sermons about the first two chapters. Can you believe that? I have hardly written 86 sermons in my life. I don't know if that's true or not. Anyway. <laughs> These interpreters had really good reason to, to read the Song of Songs as an allegory, to read it about the relationship between God and humans, because Song of Songs has more quotes in it from other places in Scripture than any other book in the Bible. Um, It creates layers of meaning as the author takes little bits from other places and puts them into this intimate love poem. And the rest of scripture supports this reading of it being between God and and Israel or the church because Israel and the church are often spoken of as God's bride and the kingdom of God as a wedding feast. And honestly, just how beautiful to have a relationship with God that could hold the kind of intimacy of the Song of Songs. I mean, even if it isn't your favorite way to read this, because I'm sure you all have favorite ways to read Song of Songs, even if the allegory doesn't appeal to you, because it is a little strange sometimes, uh, once you get into like, what do the flock of goats mean? Uh, I'll say more about that in a minute. (laughs) Uh, I would encourage you to read this text. It's short. If you haven't read it yet, it's like nine chapters, eight chapters, eight chapters. Uh, To read it with this relationship with you or with the church and God in mind. And see what it says to your faith. Many Christians over generations thought that this kind of intimacy had something to say to their relationship with God. and actually Jewish people too, the rabbi Akiba, um, he said that all of scripture is holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. Because it it is the place that brings us to the heart of intimacy with God. It reminds me too of Saint Augustine, Augustine saying, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. What does this kind of intimacy look like with God? What might it look like for you? That said, some of the allegories get a little ridiculous. Like, I don't know whose gem this is, but one early commentator said that the woman's two breasts represented Moses and Aaron. Like, I just, 
love how, I just, I just think that's hilarious. Anyway. <laughs> they were also like the high priest and the temple, like there were all sorts of different, uh, the two tablets of the, of the law. Um, anyway. <laughs> there, there are good reasons to, uh, for an allegorical reading, but I think some of the, and I think, I should say, I think some of the commentators were genuinely reading it this way in earnest. Um, but sometimes it starts to feel like a little bit of a cover-up for squeamish people who are super uncomfortable with sex. Um, the Second Council of Constantinople in 550 outlawed the reading of scripture as a human relationship. You just weren't allowed. And they, there was a lot of effort put into covering up that kind of reading. So we don't have a lot of documents that tell us, like, well, how many people were reading it this way? We just don't have them. Uh, though, apparently, it was used as a drinking song. <laughs> right? I mean, you can't blame them with the clusters of fruit. Um, Dr. Davis thinks that we should stick with an allegor allegorical reading. And she's okay with a literal reading, too, and she also adds other ways to read it. She notices that in the text, the woman is consistently compared to buildings and landscapes um, with lots of geographical references. So much so that she kind of looks like Jerusalem. But also, she's kind of better than Jerusalem, like a healed and whole Jerusalem, lush and verdant. She suggests that if we take that language seriously, and we should because it's scripture, it might also teach us how to relate to the land with love. We can see in the song not only a flourishing intimate relationship with God and with one another, but also with the rest of the non-human creation. Our planet suffers from our lack of love and attention. This kind of intimate relationship and care might be just what it needs. The language of poetry invites many different meanings. Not any meaning can't mean anything, but it can mean a lot of different things. And my favorite reading comes from our Old Testament professor at uh, Regent, where, we went, where Tony and I went to seminary. His name is Ian Proven. Um, I find his reading of the text very compelling, and it makes sense of a lot of things that are kind of confusing. So, he holds, he says, you know, the author might have meant for us both to read it about us and God and also about uh, human people, like a human relationship, but he places more weight on the human relationship, the kind of literal reading. Um, and one of the difficulties in interpreting Song of Songs is that we don't really know who the characters are. Um, the the, man, the main, main male and female characters are not given names. Um, the only person who's named is Solomon, and it's kind of, it's always in third person. So some people think, uh, oh, well, the, the male character is Solomon, and that's sort of supported by the inscription at the top. The first verse says, uh, I think in the NIV it says, Solomon's Song of Songs. I think that makes it seem a little too clear. Uh, it's more like the Song of Songs of Solomon, which could mean that he wrote it, or could mean that it just concerns him in some way, or maybe someone dedicated it to him. Um, it's, I think, more likely that he did not write it. Um, anyway, so some people see it as Solomon wrote it, Solomon is the male character, and, and the female character is one of his wives or concubines, because Solomon is famous for having like a thousand 
women in his harem, uh, which is gross. Um, Dr. Proven argues that Solomon is not the male figure in the text, but he's actually the bad guy. And he's the one who threatens the love of this couple. He says the woman figure is, she is one of his wives or concubines. She's part of his royal court, but she has another lover. And the poem is between those two. And Solomon comes in as this threatening figure. Um, like maybe she was in love with someone or promised to someone before Solomon came in and ripped her out of her life as this famous collector of women that he was. And she is being faithful to her first love. Read in that way, the song becomes a challenge to oppressive power structures and the patriarchy. Dr. Proven calls the Song of Solomon a stirring tale of fidelity to first love in the face of power, coercion, and all the temptations of the royal court. Song of Songs then compares these two kinds of relationship. The first between the woman and her lover, the relationship that takes up most of the book, shows two people coming together freely and on equal footing. They are bound in a lasting commitment I am my beloved and my beloved's is mine, they say, frequently saying, among everyone else, you are the one. They delight in one another physically and emotionally, both as lovers and friends, knowing no shame and no fear, only shared love. The second kind of relationship kind of lurks in the background of the text, and it threatens the first. And that is the relationship between Solomon and the woman. That relationship, Dr. Proven says, places the male in a dominant and powerful position over the female such that she does not enter the relationship by choice, but is only the pawn in a male game that has to do with legal contracts, money, and the collection of objects of pleasure. And Song of Songs lifts up the first kind of relationship, the mutual, self-giving love of equals. And it makes quite a bit of sense to read it this way. It makes sense of why the lovers are always looking for each other. They kind of always seem to be like, where'd he go? Um, why their meetings seem to have to be clandestine. Maybe why she gets beat up by the guards in, when she's looking for him in chapter five. Now it, you know, that sounds a little like we're reading a modern relationship into the text. Like that wouldn't have been a reality back then. Why are we thinking about that? Nobody was thinking equal footing then. And maybe that's true, but in the Song of Songs, the woman's voice takes precedence. She speaks way more than the man, and she takes the majority of the initiative in their relationship. She is no passive receiver of his love. She pursues him. And listen, in a culture where she could be bought and sold, she says this in, in chapter eight. Now remember, vineyards and gardens are often euphemisms for bodies. She says, Solomon has a vineyard in Balhamon, which means like Lord of the crowd. So I don't know if that means like, it's kind of alluding to many women. Anyway, Solomon has a vineyard in Balhamon. He let out his vineyard to his tenants. I don't know what that means. But she says, my own vineyard is mine to give. That's a pretty empowered statement from a biblical woman. <laughs> 
There's also lots of this like really interesting moment in, uh, seven, in chapter 7, verse 10. She says, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. That Hebrew word for desire is only used twice in scripture. Here, his desire is for me. And in Genesis 3.16, right after the fall, when God says to Eve that because of their sin, her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Like in my opinion, I read like the patriarchy as a consequence of the fall. And Ellen Davis points out like this is a poignant thing that this word only appears twice in the whole text. It is an intentional reversal on behalf of the poet. This is a redeemed relationship without the baggage of the fall. Dr. Provin has this whole long section in his commentary. I wanted to just read you his commentary, <laughs> but that doesn't work usually for sermons. Um, he has this whole long section about how all the men who are so determined to read the song as an allegory and nothing else may well have resisted a literal reading because they knew that it would challenge their power. They knew that it would challenge the patriarchy. You see what I mean about the spirit like necessarily being involved in this? This is in scripture. It's amazing. In the Old Testament, no less. There are, <laughs> there are lots of ways to read this text. And that's kind of the point, right? And held together, all of these readings, they point us toward shalom, toward this peace that we lost in Eden. The allegory shows us peace with God. The literal reading shows us peace within ourselves as the lovers rejoice in their desire and in their own bodies. Peace with each other as they delight with one an in one another. And in Ellen Davis's reading, we also find peace with the land. It is a goodness of creation affirmed and the whole of creation restored. And no matter how you read it, the poem is full of imagery from the, of a garden. And hopefully as we've gone through this Bible series, you're starting to make note when you see gardens in scripture. Because they call us back to Eden. That place of perfect shalom, of perfect peace. Our intended place in creation. At peace with God, with each other, and with the non-human creation. And Eden, by the way, it means delight. The garden of delight is our intended home. We are created to join in God's delight in all that God has made, in God and in one another. Whether it is good food and drink or the beauty and interconnectedness of all of God's good creation or our very sexuality or in the intimacy of worship and prayer, we are invited to enjoy. And while it has fallen, you know, that's no secret that the world is messed up. The goodness of God's creation is not lost. It runs deep and we can still partake in it. It is there for you to savor and enjoy as you enter into God's own delight. Of course, the song acknowledges that sin can and does distort the goodness that we have been given. 
making the gifts of God into sad and destructive parodies of themselves. That's one thing that stands out clearly in the text, the incredible power of love, which on the one side is so life-giving and on the other side is so crushing. But in its right place, in its right context, love and sex, like all of the good gifts of our God, it's, they're beautiful. And whether you want to read this poem or a collection of poems as an allegory or not, it can point us to God. All of these good gifts that God gives us, they point us to their creator, the source of all love and goodness. And of course, that final affirmation of the goodness of creation comes in Christ, the clearest picture we have of God who took on flesh and so made all things sacred. And I chose a text for the New Testament reading where you see him even after the resurrection saying, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, like still bearing the creation on him and eating even, still delighting in the goodness of the world. As one expression of this goodness in the Song of Songs, we can remember something of the goodness that we were created for, even in the midst of this broken world. We can all look forward to the day when all things will be set right again. And through the work of Christ, our God who desires us like a lover, who woos us to himself, who covers our shame and invites us to a life free of fear, who pursues us in that love relentlessly. Our God is drawing us forward through all of this brokenness to, to the delight of shalom restored when all things will be made new. Let us look for that goodness even now as we wait for it to come in full. Please pray with me. Lord, may we um, have eyes not just to see your gifts, but to see you through them, to know that you are the giver, the one who has made everything good. And when, our, when, the, when we use those gifts in a way that honors you, they are um, healing and whole for us, and also a part of our worship. Lord, teach us to do that this week as we go um, about our days. In Jesus' name, amen.